You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good morning. Welcome to the Business Hour. I'm Ron Camacho, your host, and today the topic at hand is the subject of water resources, another in a series of programs dedicated to this very, very timely topic. Because, of course, water resources in the United States and around the globe uh, have become considerably diminished in, in some regions, and no matter uh, what the uh, the situation is from, from flooding to drought um, and everything in between, uh, water has become a precious commodity for which uh, policy, technology, and um, legislation and economics come into play. And one organization that's playing its part in helping to educate the American people, uh, the public, uh, as well as other professionals about water resources is the American Water Resources Association. And the director of the University of Idaho's Water Resources Research Institute, as well as the president of the American Water Resources Association, is Dr. John Tracy. And today we'll be talking with Dr. Tracy about current conditions in the U.S., as well as various aspects of water resources, ranging from rainwater collection to storage to distribution to irrigation to desalination, and uh, even a little bit about innovative water technologies. And for some listeners, you may have... Uh, you may recall that just a, a couple of weeks back we had Dr. Robert Mace from the Texas Water Resources Board as a guest, and this is part of a continuing series on this very important, this very critical topic. So I'm very pleased to have Dr. Tracy as my guest this morning. Welcome to the Business Hour, Dr. Tracy. Oh, thank you very much, and thank you for having me on. Well, in the uh, my setup, I talk about uh, the uh, critical nature of water to uh, local economies and uh, to the United States in general. And uh, in, in spite of the fact that we've seen uh, flooding conditions uh, in various parts of the country, particularly the southwestern United States, um, I would say that the significance of a clean and safe water supply has become more critical uh, than ever, particularly as we have population growth in, in regions all over the country and all over the world. Um, and, and that that ranges from uh, water that we drink to agricultural and industrial use. Uh, would you agree that it's it, – it, do you have a sense at uh, – the American Water Resources Association that it is more critical than ever? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, we're, we're seeing uh, much more of an interest in the association and much more demands for, I guess I'd say, information coming out regarding all, all aspects of water resources, whether it be water supply, water for the environment, uh, flood control, um, you know, all aspects of it right now. Um, well, let's uh, start with... Um, offering to our listeners an overview of what the American Water Resources Association does, and then we'll turn in a bit to the University of Idaho's Water Resources Research Institute. Um, but let's, uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about what the, the mission is and the scope of what the American Water Resources Association does. 
Um, yeah, the American Water Resources Association has been around for 50 years and developed as a need to meet the interdisciplinary discussion of water resources, you know, not just as an economic subject or an engineering subject, but more broadly a, an organization to allow all elements involved in water resources discussion to come together and talk about water resources, share information, and um, just find out what everybody's doing and all the perspectives on water resources. And it really comes down to our tagline, which is, uh, you know, community connections and conversation. Uh, that's what the association is about. Now, um, you, you talked about the multidisciplinary approach that uh, the American Water Resources Association takes to the, uh, the topic. Uh, are, are, out of curiosity, um, are there other organizations uh, nationally that have a similar scope? Um, in somewhat specific uh, areas, I mean, one thing that makes the American Water Resources unique is that all sectors, of, and what I mean is education sectors, government, private industry, all belong to the association. And so, for example, there's the University Council on Water Resources, which also takes an interdisciplinary approach to water resources, but it's really universities that are involved. And uh, when you have um, the American Society of Civil Engineers, they have the uh, uh, Environment and Water Research uh, Resources Institute, which does have many aspects of water in there. It's, it's really organized around an engineering framework. And so we are somewhat unique in being, uh, you know, an organization that is very inclusive in all aspects of, uh, you know, in all interests in water to the degree that we've actually had one of our uh, magazines, Impact, uh, had a, um, a focus on uh, uh, hydrotheology, that is, you know, how religion and water meet. And so we tend to be very broad and inclusive in, you know, who, who we're interested in and having the conversation about water. <laughs> Well, it, it sounds like the um, majority of members may uh, have an academic background or be current uh, uh, academicians, but uh, it sounds like you also have some non-academic uh, engineers as members. Is that right? Oh, yes. Uh, in terms of the membership, um, it, it's actually there's no single sector that has a majority. So I think we're about a third academics uh, a third private industry, and about a third a mixture of local, state, and federal governments, and also uh, nonprofit organizations. And so it's fairly well balanced when you go to conferences. It's not all academics talking to academics. And uh, that's what makes it interesting um, when you have to have uh, conversations where it, it's not all theoretical, but it's uh, uh, you've got to get to the point where the rubber meets the road, and, and you'll get asked you know, good questions about that, you know, it's a good topic, but uh, why does it matter? And and that's what makes it interesting uh, working with your organization. Uh, that you, you have to be able to communicate to all of those sectors, not just one. Have you found uh, in recent uh, months or the last uh, year or two uh, that uh, you have local water resources uh, board uh, staff or boards of directors uh, or state? water resources, um, staff members uh, becoming members, becoming more interested than ever? Oh, yes. Um, and, and it's interesting because there's the National American Water Resources Association, which I'm the president of, and we support the development of state uh, American Water Resources Association sections. And at the national level, we have several, um, you know, members of state water um, organizations that belong. Uh, the state-level organizations, they're hugely 
hugely, and uh, the uh, state water resources departments are hugely involved in many of the state organizations, and actually provide the leadership for for a lot of state organizations. So there's there's a tremendous amount of involvement for the state sections, and then there is some involvement in the, in the national section. But there's definitely been a lot of interest and a lot of growth in the state sections. We can see that. Now, along with um, the gathering of information and the dialogue about water resources, uh, do you also play uh, a role uh, to any extent in advocacy advocacy uh, anywhere in the country? Um, no, actually, that's one of the things that as uh, we, we've discussed on the board and it comes up uh, every now and then, uh, we feel our role is to I mean, what we advocate for was sharing of information and communication. And so um, our, our role in advocacy is to forward the discussion. And um, that's the only role we'll play. So we will not advocate for particular water quality standards or water you know, policies, but rather it is simply to you know, try to provide a forum where people feel they can uh, communicate in an open and honest manner and, and that's what we advocate for. Do, do any local, state, or regional um, organizations turn uh, to you and, and ask for guidance when it comes to water quality standards? Uh, it's not so much guidance. It's they ask us for our connections with experts that can speak to the various issues of uh, water quality standards. And whether it's uh, biologic issues uh, related to, for example, uh, impacts on fish populations or whether ec- economic aspects or recreational aspects. And so we, when we get turned to, it's really to you know, help them find experts that can speak to them on particular elements uh, associated with water quality standards, for example, um, but not anything beyond that. And so we, we sort of serve as that broker of, oh, well, we know some really smart people over here that can help inform you, and we try to provide those connections. When it comes to identifying what the American Association or the American Water Resources Association sees as um, the critical issues to focus on, what what... What are those critical issues in 2015, and, and, and how have they evolved over the last uh, decade or so? Well, you know, you have the, the ones uh, that come up just because of uh, the climate conditions. So obviously there's been a lot more interest in drought discussions uh, over the last couple of years. And so many of our, um, of our uh, conferences have you know, extensive sessions on drought. Um, on the larger trend uh, directions... Uh, there's been a lot more discussion, a lot more interest in integrated water resources management. And it's, it's kind of an interesting topic because it's somewhat debated, and it sounds really good that we should approach everything from an integrated point of view, but there's a lot of discussion as to exactly what that means when you come down to uh, developing water resources and managing water resources. So we have seen that trend, that there's a lot more discussion on focusing on water resources management from an integrated perspective, as opposed to just saying, well, we can come up with engineering solutions, or we're just going to look at the economic aspects, but really bringing in a broader perspective when we're talking about managing or developing water resources and trying to address as many of the, uh, uh, I guess I'd say the impacts of developing water resources and making sure that's in the information that's available to decision makers once they come time to make a decision. And so that, that is something that's definitely been a trend. Um, 
the other ones, I mean, you know, climate change is still a huge topic, drought, flood, you know, the traditional water resources topics. But that's one I've seen as a trend of being uh, much more discussed in recent years, and it seems like that discussion will continue going on. Well, it, it would it would seem that no uh, state or regional and certainly no local uh, jurisdiction uh, is able to see around the curve and plan for uh, severe drought conditions, um, but are there some examples uh, regionally that you see around the country uh, where a, a state, a regional, or a local jurisdiction is taking a very comprehensive integrated water resources management approach uh, to um, their problems? Yeah, it's it's interesting. There's some examples, and, and just to let you know, the American Water Resource Association actually has a an IWRM award, an Integrated Water Resources Management Award, that they uh, that they award each year, and so that's obviously a place to go and see, um, you know, some examples of what uh, the, the organization feels are good examples of uh, at least planning for uh, integrated water resources management. Um, but because it's a new topic, you know, we're sort of awarding what are the good plans, and it 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 takes time to implement these plans, and so. I, I don't know if any of them have been implemented to the degree that you would be able to uh, uh, to um, you know see the results because uh, those results are going to be you know twenty thirty years down the line and and unfortunately the results of good integrated water resources management is that uh, you don't have problems <laughs> and so um, you know the, the the results are is you look for places that aren't seeming to have water problems and it, it's difficult to sort of hold that up and say yay we don't have problems look we did well. Because uh, typically you get the notice for having problems, and uh, so it, 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 it's sort of hard to, to how should I say to point to success because sex, success is lack of uh, problems, and th- th- that makes it difficult. Uh, but some examples where I can see at least some municipalities that are really seriously approaching the problem and being able to address, you know, the high degree of variability in their water resources. I, I, I don't know um, beyond. Uh, it's just sort of a general idea of what the city of San Diego is doing. But it's very clear that San Diego has felt that uh, the variability in their water supply has pushed them to the realm of really going to consciously using all the available water resources they have and trying to control their own circumstances and not relying on, uh, for example, imported water from the Colorado River. Uh, and can I, can so I... they're moving to this situation where they're trying to provide, uh, you know, for themselves within the, the, the bounds of the water resources they have within the basin. And so that's an interesting example going on. We'll see how successful that is. Let me interrupt you there for just a moment, Dr. Tracy. We do have to take a break. When we come back, let's talk a little bit about San Diego and any other municipal uh, or local regional uh, jurisdiction that you think is doing uh, good uh, integrated water resources management. We're here with Dr. Don, John Tracy of the American Water Resources Association. We'll be back right after this break. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month 
and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Business Hour. We're here with Dr. John Tracy, the president of the American Water Resources Association and also the director of the Idaho Water Resources Research Institute. And we're talking about water resources in general. And just before the break, we were talking about uh, integrated water resources management. And you cited as an example of a, a, a municipality that was doing some good work in this area um, San Diego, uh, and, and I do happen to know of one area that uh, may or may not be uh, within the jurisdiction of the city of San Diego, but is certainly nearby, and that's the new uh, Carlsbad water uh, desalination plant uh, that's coming online very soon. Can you tell us about what you consider to be some other uh, key aspects to their integrated water resources management program? Uh, yeah, uh, one aspect is, is that they've uh, completely, well, they've tried to go as far as they can from what they call toilet to tap, which is not a great name for the water source, but it is pretty much uh, trying to completely reuse all of their wastewater in their, in their stream as a water source, and they've been doing that for quite a while. And uh, so that has really increased the availability of, of, of water for use there. In addition, there's some degree of um, rainwater harvesting that goes on that's part of it more on an individual basis rather than, a, I guess it's a municipality-wide basis. But all those things put together really allow them to use a very scarce water supply to meet the demands of, of you know, that entire um, area. And, and it's very impressive because they're really able to reduce the, the need to import water into the basin, which makes their water management uh, more robust in the, in, the, in the long run because they're less affected by droughts in other regions. You, and you would think that um, we, uh, as a nation, uh, and that uh, other forward-thinking uh, nations would have uh, invested in, in uh, recycling of wastewater and of rainwater harvesting, but of course, uh, uh, 
um, oftentimes we don't uh, focus resources until uh, we suffer a little pain. Uh, and certainly uh, in Southern California, they're experiencing uh, drought conditions and just a scarcity of water that has really gone on for, for decades, uh, ever since uh, they realized that the Colorado River wasn't going to be sufficient and that uh, the runoff from the Sierra Nevadas wasn't going to be sufficient uh, to supply water to uh, Central and Southern California. Um, can we drill down for just a second and tell us a little bit about uh, w- what does a wastewater program entail? Is that an expensive undertaking for a municipality? Is there a lot of retooling? And, uh, and, and, and the same uh, for rainwater harvesting, does that take uh, a, a lot of uh, investment in uh, facilities? Tell us a little bit about those two areas. Yeah, they're, they're interesting contrasts because in terms of uh, reusing all of your wastewater, what it requires is that you're going to have to have treatment of your wastewater to a degree that it is of a high enough quality that you can use it for specific uses. And there are cities such as Reno, Nevada, that treat it to a degree that you can use it for landscape irrigation. And it's put in what's called purple pipes to identify that you should not drink it, you should not come in contact with it or swim in it, but it's fine for golf course you know, watering. But San Diego has gone to the higher level of technology, which is sometimes referred to as tertiary treatment, which is sort of the third level of treatment, where the water coming out of the wastewater treatment plant is so pure it's, it's more pure than most water that naturally flows in streams, and so people can use it in their homes, drink with it, you know, bathe with it, that type of thing. And that is a very expensive proposition, and so for years it, it was just too expensive compared to going out and uh, drilling a well, for example. But now um, in many regions of the West Coast, you know, California in particular, uh, there, there is no more water, or it's so expensive to get that water, or the treatment costs, uh, because the water quality that they have access to is so low, this has all of a sudden become economically viable. And when you factor in the reliability of the water source, uh, then the expense of the wastewater treatment is, uh, is worth it in, in terms of having it for a water supply. But that's mainly on, I guess, what I call a water utility level, where, you know, a large government organization uh, invests in the technology and then makes it work. The rainwater harvesting is interesting in that it's more of an individual homeowner basis. That is, the cost doesn't come down to something you pay in your water bill. The cost comes down to installing it in your home. And uh, that's one in many areas where all of a sudden the homeowners are realizing, well, my water bill per month in the sum, you know, and at one time of the year maybe $200 a month, so it may be worthwhile to put in 20,000 gallons of, of storage for rainwater harvesting. And over the long haul, that's cheaper for me than rather than using the water from the city supply. So they're, they're both investments, but one's on an individual basis and one's on a governmental basis. And uh, it, it's been um, the, the changes... Um, have been coming where, you know, both of those things are happening, and it's kind of individual homeowners deciding that the rainwater harvesting is worth it, and communities deciding that the uh, reuse of wastewater is worth it. Um, in the case of um, uh, recycling of uh, wastewater and and the purple pipes pipes in Reno, are those purple pipes that uh, stretch from? Uh, reclamation facilities uh, are they on site in commercial uh, agricultural sites and and residentially oh in Reno no Uh, they have uh, the the wastewater treatment plants uh, collect the wastewater you know through a sewage collection system and then the water is treated there to a degree that it can be used for landscape irrigation 
and then there is a uh, water distribution system <laughs> that goes out, and uh, then you know you have how should you say the the clean water in one distribution system and the uh, sort of clean water from reclaimed wastewater in another system, and then it's provided to um, you know all areas of town so that you can use that to uh, irrigate um, you know park landscaping and golf courses. So, are there purple pipes coming from the uh, uh, treatment facilities? Uh, uh, at large uh, purple pipes going to smaller purple pipes on site at uh, at golf courses and, yes, and, and yes, parks. That, that's exactly how it works. Yep. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, rainwater harvesting. And, and one of the questions that I had asked uh, Dr. Robert Mace of the Texas Water Resources Board was whether or not uh, we might ever see rainwater harvesting uh, operations facilities. Um, that are not unlike very large-scale solar collection farms where you have, instead of uh, dishes uh, that are facing the sun and collecting uh, solar energy, uh, we're talking about uh, giant uh, funnels, so to speak, or troughs uh, that are collecting water and, and, and directing it m- maybe to nearby uh, reservoirs or at least uh, getting it to uh, to places where it can be stored. Is that... Is that uh, Something that uh, either uh, the American Association of Water Resources or uh, or that you personally uh, think will see any time in the near future. Um, no, well, you know, it's interesting because if you go back a uh, hundred years when the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation started their large reservoir projects, the building of reservoirs in the West for water supply, which was new at the time, uh, believe it or not. Um, was a rainwater harvesting scheme, as it were, with, with sort of of the like you described. Um, the rainwater harvesting goes on now. Uh, it has to be looked at as, as creating a distributed water supply. And the reason it's going to be sort of a home-by-home home or business-by-business business or the largest neighborhood-by-neighborhood neighborhood effort is that, it, you know, what you're talking about in rainwater harvesting is collecting water that falls on impervious surfaces that we've developed, you know, and whether it be the roofs of our homes uh, our streets, you know, something where water isn't infiltrating to the ground, but rather hitting a hard surface and running off. And so if you're doing that and you look at it and say, is it going to be more cost-effective to collect it where it falls and store it there because it's going to be used there, or is it more effective to collect it centrally and build a huge infrastructure of pipes to distribute it? Uh, the, the cheaper option is to have people collect it where it falls and where they use it. And so then you don't have to have big pipes running undergrounds and pumps moving water. Rather, you know, it's collected on the roof of your house, you store it in your yard, and then you use it in your yard. And so I think that's really the future of rainwater harvesting. Um, it, it can be to the point where it's more of a community practice as opposed to an individual practice. And an example of that is Lopez Island in the San Juan Islands up in um, uh, the Puget Sound of uh, uh, Washington, where they they have no more water. And so if you're doing any kind of home development there, you have to put in a rainwater harvesting system. And if you drive around uh, uh, Lopez Island, you, you really realize every home has a rainwater harvesting system. And they, that means not only that they have a sustainable water supply, but they've really cut the cost of water infrastructure because they don't have to build big pipes moving water from one part of the island to the other. Rather, they collect it where it falls, and then it's collected where it's used. So that, that's kind of uh, the beauty of rainwater harvesting and why it's something that's going to be more distributed water supply rather than central water supply. 
Um, we're going to be taking a break here in just a bit, but I, I, I do want to say that uh, that would seem to be uh, a very key factor, uh, particularly uh, in drought-stricken uh, regions. Uh, it makes perfect sense that uh, we would all have some form of collection and storage, and of course, if it's mandated uh, or uh, or incentivized, um, you know, it makes it easier uh, when uh, you, you know your neighbor puts up that ugly uh, that ugly rainwater barrel, um, and everyone's doing it. It just then becomes uh, something that is commonplace uh, in, in a given community. One thing I do want to ask you when we come back is about agricultural uh, sites where uh, where I'm curious uh, if we'll see uh, major rainwater collection and storage efforts uh, since you know the uh, the use uh, agriculturally and commercially uh, to a lesser extent are much greater uh, than residential usage. But we'll take a break. We're here with Dr. John Tracy of the American Water Resources Association and the director of the Idaho Water Research Idaho Water Resources Research Institute say that five times in a row and we'll be back just in just a bit. Thank you. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. This is Georgia author Doug Dahlgren. Join me Fridays at 11 a.m. for a new show here on America's Web Radio. We call it the Prologue. I'll be introducing you to other writers you may not have heard of yet. That's Fridays at 11 a.m. here on America's Web Radio. The United States Justice Foundation since 1979 has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Business Hour. I'm Ron Camacho, your host, and we're here with Dr. John Tracy, the president of the American Water Resources Association and also the director of the Idaho Water Resources Research Institute, and we'll be talking about that in just a moment. But before the break, we were talking about rainwater harvesting, and I think a lot of people are interested, particularly uh, when we have uh, flooding in, in certain regions of the country, people are wondering about, you know, how can that water be captured uh, and used in the future or maybe even moved to uh, other areas that are suffering from uh, drought conditions. Uh, 
And that brought me to um, the area of agricultural use, which is the overwhelmingly most intensive uh, area for water water usage. Um, do we know, John, if if there are going to be uh, more on-site water collection uh, technologies uh, that that farmers uh, will incorporate into their operations, you know, I, I you know, I, I, I'm envisioning something which actually uh, opens uh, like a flower, uh, you know, uh, you know, or, or the aperture of a camera, uh, so that it fans out, opens up, collects water, goes into a trough, closes down, so that those same uh, plants might uh, collect some sunlight. Or uh, maybe it's off to the side and, you know, it's adjacent to your well system and it's used to replenish your well uh, and the aquifer. Uh, any of those discussions? You know, um, it, it's not discussed as much, but it's, it's a situation where if you look at how farming practices, especially in more arid regions of the West, have evolved over time, in many respects, uh, this I guess what you call rainwater harvesting has already happened through how they manage their soil. And so, you know, it's kind of obvious if it rains in the summertime and it rains on the crops you're growing on, you've, you've in essence, captured rainwater. But that's, you know, what agriculture is in the east. Uh, You have enough water. And, you know, the problem in the west is you don't have enough water in the summertime. But the farmers have become very sophisticated in their soil management so that the rain that falls in the wintertime stays in the soil profile so it's available for the crops when they start growing. And it's become such standard practice, people don't even think of it as rainwater harvesting anymore. But, but it, in, in, in essence, it stores the water in the soil, so when crops start growing, it, it gives them a few weeks of water to, you know, to start growing. And then, of course, the problem is, is we don't have much rain in the summertime, and so you do need to have water applied. Um, but in some areas, and, and this is another one that's been in place for so long, people don't think about it. Um, in many places in the plains, in Kansas, for example, uh, they have what's called small watershed dams. And the idea behind those is you have these small areas. You can have a very small dam. You know, most people would even call it a pond. And you capture thunderstorm rain, and then it distributes uh, on the land, whether you need it for cattle watering or, you know, small supplemental water for your crops. Um, but that's been going on for 60 or 70 years, and it's, it was a program started by the USDA back in uh, 30s, 40s, or 50s, somewhere around there, uh, which is just considered part of the conservation practices. So to some degree, that's been going on in a very low-tech form for quite a while. The higher-tech discussions, things like you're discussing, I haven't really heard discussions on it, uh, but there could be some interesting ideas in terms of, uh, again, collecting water during the part of the year where you're not growing crops and making it more available for growing crops uh, when, when you don't have the water. Um, if there are any um, undergraduate or graduate <clears throat> hydrology uh, engineering students out there, uh, get to work on uh, <laughs> some creative scenarios. And, and, in fact, I believe that they probably are uh, already, you probably have students, and there probably are discussions um, at the University of, of, of Idaho uh, who are thinking about new ways of uh, collection and storage uh, and, and just overall water resources management. Um, the I want to turn now to the American Water Resources Association's annual conference, uh, which will be coming up in November. And I know that you're probably still collecting uh, abstracts and putting together uh, an agenda for that event. But uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about what uh, attendees might expect? 
Oh, yeah. The, the conference this year is in the middle of November in Denver, which is a great location for a conference uh, focused on water resources discussions. And we just went through what we call the abstract review and, and plan, session planning phase. And the um, the conference, uh, we're having over, I think it's around 330 sessions. We had a tremendous interest in presenting papers and panel discussions at the conference. And because it's the annual conference, there's, there's no specific theme. It's just let's get together and talk about water resources. So the range of topics is, is really quite amazing this year. Um, and obviously there's, there's a lot of papers uh, uh, focusing on drought. Uh, there's papers focusing on flood management. And there's papers focused on integrated water resources management um, and just the broad uh, spectrum. Uh, we are going to have some very interesting panel discussions. Uh, related to what's called the Open Water Data Initiative. And this is the initiative to uh, make uh, water resources data available and accessible to everyone that's interested. And right now, uh, nobody tries to hide the data. It's just that it's in a form where there's so much, it's difficult to access it and get meaningful information out of it. And this is an initiative being led by Dave Maidment at the University of Texas. Um, where it's trying to make this data much more available to um, anybody interested in water resources management so they can more effectively manage water resources. And so that, that's kind of exciting because it's a really big initiative with really, um, uh, how should I say, noble end goals. And, uh, and we're, we're able to have that at the conference and discuss where it's at and where it's going. Is, is that a, um, an area where the American Water Resources uh, Association and uh, an academic institution like University of Texas might partner and and eventually you would become a, a, a clearinghouse for that information um you know it, it's interesting because there's so many organizations right now uh that um you know have the data you know they go collect it the usgs for example has a tremendous amount of data on stream flows and groundwater levels and so there really isn't a need for an organization to come in and, and um, archive data or become the clearinghouse. Rather, what the need is is sort of at this higher level, and sometimes it's called the metadata level, where it's it's to sort of you know be able to point to where all the data is. And so uh, the American Water Resources Association will facilitate the conversation on how to do that. But I do see uh, academic organizations coming up with the tools so that people will be able to go out and, and be pointed to where the data they want is so that they can go in and say they're interested in, you know, what type of data is available on water reuse across the U.S., and, and it would be sort of like a, a web search, as you were. And it wouldn't just say, oh, here's some examples, but it would actually point to the data that would be available for them to understand, um, you know, how useful uh, that practice is and how much water is, is made available for that practice. So it, it's really that higher level of being able to point people to where the data is as opposed to uh, being the clearinghouse. And, and of course, the, the, you know, there's a whole technology uh, associated with the collection of that, that metadata and storage and, and uh uh, the way that it's organized, and it, it, it would seem to be uh, a project appropriate for a major university, and of course, Texas, um, with the resources that it has beyond water resources, uh, would seem to be one of those regions. Plus, being in that uh, arid to semi-arid environment, uh, with the full range of uh, uh, problems we've just discussed, from drought to, to flood water. Um, it, it would seem to be appropriate that, that they would take a lead in that area, and then hopefully the University of California system would also uh, take a, a leadership position in that the two would collaborate because those would seem to be 
two of the regions that, that stand to benefit the most. Uh, would you agree with that? Oh, and, and actually, I think the collaboration would have to be bigger. I mean, water resources, uh, like politics, is all local. Um, and the, the, the water resource conditions across the country vary so much that I would see a need for um, multiple universities to be in collaborating because you would want something that would obviously address Texas and you know the conditions in Texas and California, but you would also probably need uh, the situation you know in Colorado and then the, the Plain states and then the Midwest and the Northeast and the, and the Southern United States. So I would see that as having to be, you know, a multi-university, uh, multi-region collaboration. Oh. And in many respects, I mean, when you look at the team that Dave uh, Maidman is working with, he, he, they're already doing that. But I, I, I definitely think the need for a larger collaboration uh, would, would have to happen. No, no question about it. I, I actually envision, you know, all 50 states with maybe more one academic institution per state uh, uh, participating, you know, as part of the, the data collection uh, but I was also thinking about uh, the kind of funding that two states like uh, California and Texas uh, combined. You know, those are two economies. If you combine them, uh, yeah. they are like uh, probably the fifth largest economy uh, in the world. And, and, you know, and funding certainly is an important aspect of all, all of this. Um, and speaking of of, of economics um you and i had a brief chat about uh the overall impact to the economy of a of a of a, of a region uh the entire west coast but specifically california the entire southwest but specifically uh texas um where you have two incredibly high agriculturally productive uh regions uh drought uh can undermine uh the economy uh of of a, of a region and there is so much at stake including you and I had touched on this uh subject and I don't expect that you can address it necessarily at length but I I I think it might be appropriate for one of the 330 sessions at the uh, the conference and that is uh, if you have a large earthquake, uh, it was pointed out that in California, um, the San Andreas Fault would interrupt um, the flow of water from some uh, reservoirs, uh, and that in terms of distribution, uh, not just uh, uh, contributing to the lack of, uh, to diminishing the, the, the storage uh, of water, but in terms of distribution, there will be municipalities uh, and, and regions that are uh, are crippled. We're going to be taking a break, Dr. Tracy, but when we come back, I'd like you to just touch on that for a moment uh, about, uh, you know, I don't want to get into a doomsday scenario and the catastrophes associated with something like an earthquake, but uh, we do want to mention that, uh, you know, there are still uh, potential scenarios for for major disaster and for disrupting uh, the economies of, of some states and some regions. We're here with, with Dr. John Tracy of the American Water Resources Association, and he's also the director of the Idaho Water Resources Research Institute at the University of Idaho, and we'll be talking more with him right after this break. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. 
but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Business Hour. We're here with Dr. John Tracy of the American Water Resources Association, and he's also the director of the Idaho Water Resources Research Institute. And I did want to uh, have you address that uh, that topic of of uh, an earthquake in a part of the uh, the U.S. like uh, the West Coast, uh, specifically California, and and maybe even the San Andreas Fault, uh, where you would have the lines of distribution interrupted. You would have uh, aquifer, or rather uh, the aqueducts and other uh, pipelines um, that are distributing water to municipalities uh, broken, and uh, and the uh, potential for uh, seriously damaging uh, the economy uh, of of various various regions. Is that a real potential? Um, yeah, in uh, in California in particular, because of the large scale movement of water resources across the state and from north to south, uh, one of the real potentials and one of the real, I guess I'd say, threats. And you you can actually you know read this on many of their water planning uh, um, you know websites is uh, an earthquake that would uh, potentially um, destroy levees in the Bay Delta. And um, that's a situation where there would still be water in the delta, but it would be uh, uh, so high in salt, it would be very what we call brackish water, that it really wouldn't be usable as a water supply. And so when you would be taking the water out of the pumps in the delta and trying to move it south, uh, it would have no value for agriculture or municipalities. And then then there's a real concern if if the earthquake ended up destroying the levees. Um, It would take, obviously, years and years to rebuild the levees. And so how would you address moving the water um, of of a good enough quality to to Southern California? Um, That would be, you know, a serious problem, and and there's a lot of time and effort being spent in California addressing that. 
Um, there have been disruptions in earthquakes before in water supplies at more of a local level, level for example, um, you know, in the city of Los Angeles. And it's interesting at that level, there, um, there there's a really high level of preparedness, sort of big water um, mains break, you know, either from the re- holding reservoirs to provide the water supply for the city or throughout the city. Um, they can really rapidly respond to uh, fix those. And it, it's always interesting to me when you hear about a big earthquake in California, you know, a variety of things are discussed, but rarely do you hear, you know, a massive disruption to the, uh, the, the water supply for the city. And a lot of it is is that at the municipality level, they, they have contingencies in place, and they really um, address them quickly to the point that people probably aren't noticing that their water supply was disrupted for a short period of time. So at the local level, I think there's pretty good level of preparedness, but that, that you know, sort of the large-scale massive failure, there, there's a lot of concern of how that would be addressed. It's good to know that my hometown is uh, uh, ahead of the curve in, in some respects in some areas related to disaster preparedness. Um, I want to turn now to the University of Idaho's Water Resources Research Institute, where you're the director. Uh, are, are much of, uh, or rather is much of the mission uh, at the uh, Idaho Water Resources Research Institute uh, does it uh, coincide with what uh, the American Water Resources uh, Association is doing? Tell us a little bit about uh, what your focus is there. Yeah, at the Idaho Water Resources uh, Research Institute, uh, affectionately known as IWERI, um, we're one. Uh, each state has a water research institute as part of the USGS's Water Resources Institutes program, and we're all organized through a national organization called the National Institute for Water Resources. And each institute has a unique mission to collaborate between federal, state, and local governments to address water resources issues that are important to the state and the region. And so each state, each state's institute really focuses on the issues in their state, but we do get together nationally and see common issues and try to address them. And so in terms of the issues that the Water Resources Research Institute in Idaho is um, addressing, it's, it's predominantly a, a lot of uh, what we call agricultural water management issues because Idaho is a very big agricultural state, but it ranges quite a bit across the state because in southern Idaho it's all about irrigated agriculture with large you know, irrigated agricultural projects supplied by Bureau of Reclamation Reservoirs. And in northern Idaho is enough rain that it's uh, what we call rain-fed agriculture. And so we really kind of address this wide range of issues. And also because Idaho cities have been growing, we're really starting to address uh, municipal water issues more than we ever had in the past and, and working on everything from, you know, how do you secure reliable water supplies for growing municipalities to addressing uh, stormwater management, uh, water quality issues associated with cities and development. And that touches on uh, more effective urban planning and work of working with the College of Arts and Architecture to come up with, uh, uh, how should I say, better urban planning systems where water resources is an important component of that. Now, do you engage um, undergraduates and graduates uh, at the uh, IRERI, um, uh, in the IRERI projects? Oh, yeah, that's, that's an important mission of the Water Institute's program is we're not just supposed to do research, but we're also supposed to be educating uh, both students, undergraduates and graduates, as the future water resources professional workforce of America. And, and we get a lot of credit for uh, involving both undergraduate and graduate students in our projects. And so that is a major focus of making sure we're not just doing research, but we're getting the students involved so that they can see you know, the, uh, where, their, uh, where their learning is going and having them prepared to enter the workforce. 
Are these uh, primarily biology, ecology, environment, uh, engineering, hydrology, geophysics majors, or, or is it just all across the board? It is really all across the board. Uh, at the University of Idaho, over the last decade, we've evolved what we call the Waters of the West Initiative, which is really an interdisciplinary water resources program. And uh, interdisciplinary in the degree that they're getting aspects of economics, law, biology, ecology, uh, engineering, hydrology, geophysics, uh, and even business. I'm trying to integrate business into the program now so that when they come out, they realize that water resources isn't owned by a particular discipline, but rather all disciplines contribute to the water resources discussion. And and we're trying to develop a very well-rounded student that has a a broad perspective on water resources so that they can more effectively work in the profession and and, and deal with the situations they're going to have to deal with uh, in the future. I I failed to mention uh, business law and public policy, but uh, hopefully there are some really uh, 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 forward-thinking students who could see how they might uh, marry uh, water resources with a career in business law or uh, public policy. You know, um, Dr. Tracy, most people, I would imagine, see Idaho as a state that uh, doesn't have any real water resources problems, but that may be our... Uh, um, or my personal erroneous uh, assumption, uh, I, I think of it uh, uh, a, a lot like I think of uh, the western part of uh, uh, Washington as being heavily water-laden. But, of course, you just mentioned Lopez Island, uh, uh, you know, uh, suffering from uh, a shortage of water. Uh, what's What are water conditions like in, in Idaho in general? Um, you know, right now, uh, southern Idaho, if you look at the maps, they would be considered in a uh, sort of a, a drought state, not not a severe drought, uh, but it, it has been lower water um, supplies for the last couple of years, uh, not to the degree that it's really impacting anybody's ability uh, to use the water for agriculture or municipal industrial right now, but it is a situation if there's a third year of drought, um, then then some cutbacks would have to happen. Northern Idaho has been in pretty good shape for the last few years, and and I wouldn't consider it in in a drought condition right now. Um, Overall, we're in a a situation where Idaho does have a pretty good uh, good water supply uh, related to the water demands and the water uses. And so it is one where um, I think Idaho is in pretty good shape in water resources, but a lot of that has to be some credit given to our State Department of Water Resources, who years ago understood that all of our water supplies are interconnected, that is surface and groundwater, and established rules for managing water that you have to recognize the connection so you can't sort of you know, use as much groundwater as you want and assume it doesn't affect the surface water and vice versa. And so those progressive set of laws have allowed Idaho to establish rules for water management that don't create these situations where you get into big conflicts in groundwater and surface water management that, you know, for example, California is facing right now, or the situation in the Ogallala with continuing groundwater decline. And so it's both a combination of the physical circumstances, as as we are in a situation with good water supply, but also there's been some thoughtful management that's gone on to, to avoid conflicts that may arise in the future. Um, we did not uh, touch on desalination, but that uh, will be a topic for another uh, another session. Uh, and I do uh, want to ask you something that's uh, very important. And uh, 
And that is that um, along with having uh, your bachelor's degree in civil engineering from Colorado State University and your uh, master's and Ph.D. degrees in civil engineering from the University of California, Davis, uh, so that you are uh, eminently qualified to do what you're doing, I want to know when a very young uh, John Tracy decided to become an engineer and then when that got turned toward uh, hydrology. Um, I was in eighth grade. I, in my junior high school, we had a day where we could go visit an engineering college. I grew up in Boulder, Colorado, and I decided that um, I would go to the University of Colorado uh, Engineering College, and they took me on a tour, and I came home, and I told my parents, I'm going to be an engineer. Now, my dad was a professor of business at the University of Colorado in audit accounting, and he looked at me like, what? <laughs> And sure enough, I became an engineer. Um, but also, when I was in high school, my mom worked for um, an organization at the University of Colorado where the head of it was Gilbert White, who's considered the father of floodplain management. And uh, she'd come home and talk about what Gilbert was doing. And uh, I think that just kind of stuck, and it stuck in the back of my mind, and it was very interesting. So that when I worked, went out and worked in my first job uh, as an as a, uh, engineer for the Navy, um, I decided to go back to graduate school, and I had decided that water resources is where it was at. So I think it's a combination of both of those, uh, you know, sort of coming from, from both sides, getting exposed to engineering young and thinking this is neat, and then hearing what this broader picture of water resources management was about and sort of them converging when I went back to graduate school. Well, I think the nation is better for that uh, uh, early um direction that you had uh, to become an engineer and then to focus on water resources um, because you are uh, eminently qualified and as I said to uh, Dr. Robert Mace uh, of the Texas Water Resources Board, I think each of you is headed toward becoming uh, one of the rock stars or two of the rock stars uh, uh, much as Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, is to uh, uh, the world of astrophysics the two of you are uh, part of that universe uh, that uh, are going to become higher profile because this topic is uh, very critical. And uh, I want to thank you for the work that you do. And thank you for taking the time to be on the program. Thank you for having me. This was uh, very enjoyable. Um, and and I'm, I'm glad you had me. Well, thanks. And you've been listening to the Business Hour here at America's Web Radio. or on from 10 to 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Have a great weekend. Have a good Father's Day. We'll see you on the radio next week. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.